1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage
2: for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for September 25th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, the Korea Culpa Edition. In the episode, Jurassic Anderson, and Rosenstein discuss gang warfare and political instability in Haiti a Fifth Circuit judge's ruling in NetChoice v. Paxton that some have called legally bonkers, and more. This is Rational Security.
3: So where do we land on this whole Korean royal family thing?
2: I thought that it turned out that there was one.
1: Yeah, I think where we land is that I was right, and
3: you were all wrong to be skeptical, and I'm amazing. Is that not right? We seem to get some feedback to the contrary via the interwebs after the last episode. Suggesting that there is not a current Korean royal family, at least not involved in the government, in the way of a monarchy. Like, maybe there's a royal family, but not a monarchy.
2: Uh, From the Wikipedia page, so apologies to all listeners who actually know anything about this.
1: (laughs) To to all Korea specialists.
2: It appears that... After the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1910, in which the Empire of Japan annexed the Korean Peninsula, some members of the Jeonju-Yi clan, who so that's the the, uh, royal dynasty, were incorporated into the Imperial House of Japan. This lasted until 1947. The treaty was nullified. Then, okay, it seems like they, they are not part of the government, but according to Wikipedia, they quote, Continue to be given preference and constitute a favored symbol in South Korea. I have absolutely no idea what that means.
3: Oh, that's tricky. Yeah, that's not. Huh. So we that's weren't that far off then, no. Listeners, <laughs> angry Twitter listeners. I was. I was shocked. Our takes on royal families and monarchies generally generated more negative responses than I have seen to any other anything else we've said on this show. Wait, why? Because on our Twitter. listeners are
2: royalists, or because they're they're. I Jack think they
3: just have very strong feelings about monarchy generally. And but generally, like to be, anti. it was very hard to tell because uh, <laughs> they're British, so they're very reserved. So I think it was a lot of just strong feelings without much clarity about one way or the other. The stiff upper lips stiffened even more. Yeah. A pinky rubbed by the teacup gravitated a few inches further away, indicating displeasure. And that was all we got. But in Twitter format, it still comes off pretty harsh, it turns out. That's awesome. hello everyone welcome to rational security 2.0 i am one of your co-hosts scott r henderson and i am here with my two other co-hosts alan rosenstein hello and quinta jurassic hello and we are thrilled to be guestless this week giving us a little bit more time guestless and friendless (laughs) exactly exactly Someday we will have another guest, but not not this week.
2: Our guests are right out of frame.
3: It means we can take our usually complete lack of concise uh, ability to frame our thoughts and really just abandon the idea entirely and <laughs> fill the whole hour with our own ideas. And now I will take that um, for what we are calling this week the Korea culpa edition, in acknowledgement of some of the confusion about how we may have handled the existence of a royal family in South Korea uh, in our last episode. Although as hopefully our b-roll covered i'm not sure as far as <laughs> some people seem to appear we were I think all we were right. online we were all like 80 percent right <laughs> uh, i
1: don't know except me i feel it wasn't the conclusion that i was wrong and
3: and the rest of it is the rest of you all may have been that's just, where we that's moving. where it we landed
2: yeah saying, that's
3: just our default sort of rest Yay. that's our we have resting alan's wrongs <laughs> that's just where we are <laughs> that's awesome at the general posture of this show
1: you know you and my 18 month old
3: Exactly, exactly. Oh, don't get me started. It's been, it's been a rough 48 hours of fatherhood uh, lately, but that's okay. Separate story, separate story. <laughs> Regardless, I am thrilled to be here with you two for the Korea Culpa edition as we have a couple of topics up our respective alleys to talk about that happened this week in terms of big stories in the national security space. Topic one, Namakitepa. <laughs> Uh, A classic song people may remember from covers from Nina Simone and a few other folks. And most recently, Wyclef Jean of note, of course, the, the famous Haitian rapper and songwriter who because this topic is about his native country of Haiti, because the nearby island nation of Haiti is hitting new levels of instability as paired economic and political crises have given way to open gang warfare in broad swaths of the country. While these events have some calling for external intervention, others have expressed major reservations with such a step, given its past failings in the country. Where might this crisis lead? Topic two, I'm rubber, you're suing. Last week, the Fifth Circuit released a real barn burner of an opinion. You all would find that funny. I thought that was my least funny one of the three. Well, the first
2: no, that, that pun is on the level with uh, Judge Oldham's opinion.
3: <laughs> there we go. Ooh, there we go. I, I unfortunately know what that means. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I bothered to read this stupid thing. Uh, but regardless, last week, the Fifth Circuit released a real barn burner of an opinion in the matter of NetChoice v. Paxton wherein it adopted a narrow reading of the First Amendment in order to resurrect a Texas law severely limiting how social media platforms can moderate content. What will this case mean for platforms moving forward? Topic three, flying worst class. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has become the latest Republican governor to fly undocumented migrants to northern cities in purported protest of the Biden administration's immigration policies. But his move has sparked unexpected furor among Florida's Cuban and Venezuelan immigrant communities, among others, as well as at least one criminal investigation. What was he thinking, and where will this controversy go next? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So
1: I was thinking about where to begin in talking about the situation in, in Haiti, and just going back and doing a little more research, just to kind of re myself with the history of this country. There are a, a number of, of places. Um, you know, In the long sweep, Haiti has been really racked with political, economic, and just geophysical instability for for decades. Just since 2000, uh, it suffered from a coup, a UN peacekeeping intervention that ended uh, several years ago, a horrible earthquake, an assassination of its political leadership. The latest crisis has come because the government has instituted increases in energy costs, or to be more precise, it has removed some of the uh, subsidies uh, that were keeping energy prices accessible for everyday Haitians. It's a country that uh, is very, very poor, where people are really, really struggling. And this has uh, set off uh, a new round of protests. And, uh, you know, protest is actually probably putting it very mildly. Um, At this point, the country has fallen almost into complete anarchy. Um, There is no president, the government is not working, The judiciary isn't working. Uh, The country is basically controlled by rival gangs. Which are themselves not just gangs, but are in some ways playing the role of government in trying to provide basic services. Violence is increasing, and there's no immediate path out of this situation. While Haiti is not on the, the front news of American media, you know it is notable this is not a faraway country, right? This is a very close neighbor. It's right next to Puerto Rico, it's between Puerto Rico and, and, and Cuba, um, you know very much an uh, American neighbor. So a lot to talk about here. Scott, I want to ask you the first question, which is, do you think at this point we can say, not as a criticism, just as a descriptive fact, that Haiti is a failed state?
3: You know, I, I, that's always a term. As somebody who's who's spent time in places and, and worked in and on uh, various countries that people have at various times described as failed states, I think it's a little bit of a loaded term, so I hesitate to apply it. Uh, but certainly Haiti has huge systematic problems domestically in terms of its political system, in terms of its economy, that are recurring and have been recurring issues really since, certainly since the 1990s, really even prior to that. But we've seen just kind of a series of political crises from Haiti intersecting and in some vicious feedback loops with its economic crises of various sorts, and of course, penetrated by earth-shattering earthquakes in 2010 and Subsequently, there have been subsequent earthquakes as well, though not quite at the same scale, that are truly devastating and, and contribute to this terrible humanitarian situation. And so it is a, I think a failed state is, a, is again, a loaded term I hesitate to use, but not an unfair way to describe it. And notably, it's really the view that a lot of different civil society groups have taken in Haiti, some of the, the activist groups that are very critical of what they see as a very kind of corruption infested status quo in the political elites, uh, and that they see the current uh, kind of incumbent leadership, um, which took over after the assassination of Jovenel Moïse, uh, who was previously um, prime minister last year. He's now been replaced by somebody who some people have accused of or spread rumors about, actually being involved in that assassination although we don't know to what degree those are actually substantiated or simply a political tool. You know, so there's no real clear way out is really the answer. And you can hear that in commentaries on these sorts of approaches that the United States and other allied governments have taken on this latest crisis. You know, Haiti is a country that has experienced a lot of external interventions in the recent past. The United States has intervened militarily twice Arguably three times, although once was in response to the 2010 earthquake, so a little bit of a mixed case there. Um, but both in 1996 and 2004, I believe, and those were, you know, pretty dramatic actions intending to try and stabilize the political situation in Haiti, uh, in part because the consequence of instability in Haiti are felt in the United States through, you know, Haitians trying to flee the country by boat to American shores, particularly in the 1990s. At, proved to be a major domestic political crisis for the Clinton administration. Um, that certainly entered into the calculation about intervening in the country there. Uh, I think the Bush administration may have been worried about the same thing in the 2000s, perhaps motivating some, some intervention there as well. But at the same time, those interventions are wildly controversial among a lot of Haitians, among a lot of outside folks. Uh, the you know the last UN mission that kind of followed the US intervention in the 2000s um, was accused of corruption, accused of uh, spreading sexually transmitted diseases and engaging a lot of negative impacts and particularly devastating the Haitian economy because these you know, foreign interventions bring with them huge amounts of funds and money and foreign assistance that can really crowd out a domestic economy. So long story short, there's just no clear, easy path out about how to deal with this. And all people can really settle on is saying, well, we're just going to try and get the parties on the ground into some sort of framework. People have even moved away from elections towards some sort of political framework to restore some sort of functioning stability. But I haven't really heard many compelling stories about how exactly you go about doing that. And I think that's the real challenge at this point. How do you do that? And how do you even get things stable enough that you can have a realistic conversation about the parties doing that? You know, elections just don't seem feasible at this particular point, in part because gangs are trying to control territory so they can help control election results. So it's just not clear. There's no easy path out for this particular crisis that I can see.
2: One point on which I will confess I'm somewhat baffled and confused. Am I right that uh almost a year later, over a year later, we still have no definitive answer as to who or what was behind Juvenal Moise's assassination. I know that there has been at least one Colombian indicted in the United States, but when I was reading up the New York, on the New York Times coverage on that, it, the the paper indicated that basically it seems like this guy was involved probably planned in the United States. And that's what they got. Um, it, it seems quite astonishing that, uh, you know, the leader of a country was assassinated over a year ago, and still nobody has any idea why that happened or who was behind it.
1: There, there, there was a late 2021 New York Times article that suggested that this may have been connected to Moise's attempt to crack down on the drug trade in in Haiti, but I, I think the problem is that in you know given Haiti's current political instability, right, which has lasted for decades, it's kind of overdetermined what faction, what gang, what group might want to get rid of the 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 leader. And so I don't think there's anything definitive.
3: I think that's right, and my understanding is the investigation is ongoing. You have a federal prosecution taking place in the United States, precisely because there is a U.S. jurisdictional nexus because of the degree of planning that took place there. There are actually federal laws specifically outlawing efforts to organize insurrections in foreign countries from the United States, Uh, interestingly, because this isn't the first time this has happened, uh, for better or for worse. I don't know if that's what this person's being charged under or not. I would have to go back and, and double check that. But there is an investigation ongoing. There is supposedly involvement uh, you know, with Haitian authorities. You've had a lot of local governments. There's Colombian paramilitaries were involved, people who were uh, alumnus of Colombian security forces and were kind of private security people, were the people who actually pulled the trigger and kill, killed Moïse. Um, at least one of them has been arrested. I think that's actually the individual who is believed to be cooperating, uh, was eventually extradited to the United States or voluntarily traveled to the United States to, as, to avoid extradition elsewhere, I think, towards the end of 2021. So the investigation is, is kind of ongoing. Um, but it is a little striking here, and it enters into this latest crisis because allegations of different people being involved with the assassination have become a major political tool among the different factions of elites and have proved to, uh, been used to Rightly or wrongly, delegitimize, among other people, the incumbent prime minister, Ariel Henry, who was, if I'm recalling correctly, at one point, uh, an ally of Moïse, originally was not, there's some lack of clarity what the line of succession was after Moïse was assassinated, but eventually he ended up kind of rising to that seat and has held it for most of the last year or maybe a little more than a year now but it's still a controversial figure because of those ties. Um, I will note, I did a phenomenal discussion on the Lawfare Podcast a year ago, right after the Moist assassination with Robert Fitton, uh of the University of Virginia. highly, highly recommend folks revisit that. We may try and get him on the Lawfare Podcast again sometime soon to talk through this latest crisis with us, but haven't had the opportunity to do so thus far.
2: Yeah, I'll just say that was a fantastic conversation. And I think one of the things that really came through from it is that uh, after the Moise killing, there there was sort of a, a nesting doll of constitutional crises within one another, none of which uh, seem to have been resolved. Um, I will say, I just looked it up. So the Colombian man who was prosecu- who's being prosecuted is uh, Mario Palacios, and he is being prosecuted for conspiracy to commit murder or kidnapping outside the United States. So Scott, I don't I don't know if uh, that was the statute that you had in mind. I mean, one one thing that I will add here and. Not to be the person who every time Haiti comes up in a conversation within the United States, I do think it's impossible to talk about the situation of Haiti right now without talking about the really interesting historical work that's been done on the sort of looting of Haiti by France after uh, Haiti fought for and won its independence. So the the Times um, had a really astonishing series in the spring, uh, the spring 2022 Building on a lot of historical work that was basically quantifying the amount that Haiti had to pay back uh, to France, uh, paying reparations to former slave masters and then paying back a loan that Haiti took out to pay those reparations. So, according to the Times, uh, it seems like their estimate is that it cost Haiti anywhere from 21 billion to 115 billion in lost economic growth over time. Uh, which I think certainly helps put in context why the country is in such desperate straits today, and I mean I think also raises this complicated question of, you know, what what do these former imperial powers owe to Haiti, especially now that it's in such a, a desperate situation?
1: Well, I, I think that's in part what makes the question of intervention that much more complicated. I mean, you're absolutely right. the 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 reason in part that Haiti Maybe the main reason that Haiti is in such difficult straits is because after the Haitian Revolution, the the imperial powers, not just France, but, you know, even ones that were moving away from slavery like, like England, they all sort of boycotted uh, the Haitian economy because just the idea of a black slave revolt against European power was, was it was ideologically... I don't even know. Distasteful, <laughs> let's say to to the uh, to the European imperialists. So you know, Haiti has always suffered from this sort of path dependent structural disadvantage, and and so it makes sense that for that reason also Haitians would be quite ambivalent uh, about a modern day Monroe Doctrine, right? Under which the United States says, well, you know, Haiti is very close to Puerto Rico. It's very close to the mainland. I guess it's going to be quote unquote our problem, or even just uh, a more global intervention by the UN, right, which obviously is is controlled in large part um, and influenced in large part by the, the kind of former European and imperial powers. On the other hand, the answer can't just be, well, we did a bunch of bad things in the past. Therefore, you know, being more involved raises awkward questions. Therefore, we will let this country of millions of people sink into literal anarchy. I mean, I guess you can ignore... Haiti, for a while, it's an island, which makes it maybe a little bit more difficult for migrants to leave, though obviously they can find a way. Obviously, it's not the entirety of, of the island of Hispaniola, right? There's the Dominican Republic, but they've been busy building a wall between the two countries, uh, so maybe they can control the, the, the exodus of, of migrants. But I, I, all of this is just to say I've, I've been surprised by the fact that the implosion And again, I don't say any of these pejoratively, right? It's just about the horrible situation that the Haitian people find themselves in. The implosion of this country that is so close to the United States just has not seemed to enter into the national conversation, I think, in part because of some isolationism and and in part because maybe a a left-wing reluctance to, to do anything that smacks of Neo imperialism, which again is understandable given the historical context, but seems increasingly untenable given what is just happening on the ground. I I don't know where this goes, but it's I don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I tend to agree with that. We we have a problem with when we talk about intervention, both because a we don't define very well what that means. Like, what does intervention mean? Does it mean are we talking about political intervention? We just mean military intervention when we problematize that? Do we mean a whole range of engagement with? foreign countries, uh, particularly weaker foreign countries. That's usually the context in which it's most problematic. And beyond that, in addition, we we, we don't tend to really lay out in effort to kind of Say what is it that different types of intervention can do and can't do effectively? I think we instead the United States and other major powers tend to oscillate wildly between the two. We go through periods like we had right after the nine eleven attacks, or frankly before the nine eleven attacks as well, about the nineties and early two thousands, where people were wildly optimistic about what we can accomplish with military interventions, particularly in smaller countries. You know, pursued a large number of them. Then in the last few years, people I think have understandably become much more skeptical of what sort of accomplishments can be accomplished, even with like large-scale occupations and interventions overseas, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, neither of which has ended as any people hoped they would, and anywhere close to the way people hoped they would twenty years ago when we started them. And that has people wildly skeptical. That, particularly when combined with the post very challenging post-colonial history, colonial and post-colonial history of places like Haiti, makes this such an anathema. Kind of third rail for a lot of people to begin talking about at the same time, you know, I, I don't know if there is clearly like if there is something that a particularly even a military intervention can accomplish, it is to restore security situations in certain areas, right, in the short term, so long as you have a military presence there at. The U.S. interventions in 96 and 2004 did do that. They didn't solve the underlying problem. Uh, they arguably aggravated certain aspects of the problem that made it maybe more systematic and worse, but they did at least provide that momentary element of increased stability. And there are maybe solutions that that can be a part of that I think the inclination is perhaps it's too easy for people to lean and write that off and group that in with much different types and broader types of intervention. Um, People tend to think of it as a binary, and and I think we have to disaggregate the whole range of policy options a little bit more than that. Um, That said, I also tend to be, in most circumstances, I tend to be somebody who's very skeptical of particularly military intervention, because I just don't think it can often accomplish that much. The United States tends to be wildly bullish on what it can do with its military, and I think it wildly exaggerates that, and that might be a case like this here. But I also think it is a tool in the toolkit that people need to have a conversation about, um, and that conversation needs to be, you know, a little more nuanced than than simply revisiting past misuses of that tool.
2: Yeah. So one point before we close, I think that since we were referencing, you know, what what effects we might see uh, from this crisis in the United States, just immediately follow-on effects. There has been a surge in uh, people trying to travel to the United States from Haiti because of the violence and instability in that country. So if listeners remember, there was a controversy, uh, I think about a year or so ago, where a border patrol agent on a horse seemed to be attacking a Haitian man trying to cross the Rio Grande with a whip. It Later turned out that that was not precisely what happened, but it was what happened was still pretty bad. And and DHS uh, was quite apologetic about it for what it's worth. And the Biden administration has been expelling um, Haitians who crossed into the United States back to Haiti. There's a, The most recent report I could find about this was in uh, June 2022. I, I think it is still going on, although I'm not 100% sure, uh, because the U.S. under the immigration structure that the U.S. is currently, currently operating with, we have a diplomatic relationship with Haiti where we can send people back. Um, so people are trying to escape and the United States has been stepping up uh, efforts to put them right back where they started. So. The last, the, I, th- I believe this current increase in people from Haiti trying to travel to the United States began after the Moïse assassination. Um, I don't know, but I guess I wouldn't be surprised if we see another increase of, of people trying to leave as the current situation deteriorates. And I would hope, but have no expectation, that the United States would do something other than just send them right back to where they came from.
3: No, I think that's a really astute observation, Quinta, and something worth bearing in mind. We don't see the you know Haitian immigration flows being the high-profile story that they were 20 years ago today, but they were a very high-profile story 20 years ago. And there have actually been a very big focus of US policy in a lot of very problematic ways, and a lot of people's views, including mine, about controlling those population flows in response to the variety of Haitian crises. And again, that has driven frankly, at least two prior presidential administrations of different parties to eventually intervene in Haiti when faced with really dire consequences. The Biden administration's in a really unique political moment in a way. It has really kind of hung its hat on being the, the wind-up administration, the administration that's less inclined to do military intervention, winding up conflict in Iraq, winding up conflict in Afghanistan, uh, engaging in Ukraine, but in a very lim- limited way. A little bullish on Taiwan, that's one one area where maybe it departs from this trend, but generally uh, seems less inclined to foreign intervention, um, you know, less active in expanding global war on terror, winding down, engagement with different theaters. But this could end up being a real test of that and the limits of that to a certain extent. Again, if you have a real crisis brewing so close to the United States, you know, policymakers are going to be less struggling for options. It's worth noting the prior two administrations opted to eventually intervene in Haiti um, when they did without congressional authorization. Um, There are Office of Legal Counsel opinions on the books basically laying out uh, the case why they think that sort of intervention, which presumably this would look a lot like, of which was substantial. In one case, over 20,000 U.S. troops, I believe, were involved, don't require congressional authorization. I think dynamics are a little different from the Biden administration politically, um, and the dynamics around uh, U.S. military involvement overseas are very different today than they were in the 90s and the 2000s. But I think it may end up being a conversation if you end up having this crisis continue to develop in this way. Because again, people are going to be left really struggling for any tool they can bring to bear on the scenario. And that is one the United States has and could even very plausibly get international support uh, for it like they did in the 2000s. Although it will certainly prove controversial in the region and in Haiti and domestically. So something worth keeping our eye on uh, in terms of the menu of possible crises the United States might face. Here's a a dark horse candidate for one that might become more significant at some point sooner rather than later well going from anarchy in the caribbean let's go to anarchy on the fifth circuit because the fifth circuit has done something very interesting in this last week that you two have certainly been following um, for a long time alan you just published a, a really wonderful read on law i recommend people check out uh both summarizing and critiquing this opinion but let me take a a shot at breaking it down. You all can correct me uh, where I get it wrong. Godspeed, John Glenn. I'm going to do it very high level. But essentially, there is a law that Texas enacted (laughs) that seeks to regulate how social media platforms engage in content moderation in various ways. We can get in the details on that. That law was originally enjoined as a First Amendment violation uh, by district court. That district court There are some machinations involving the Supreme Court uh, briefly uh, about that. Uh, And then that decision now has been overturned by the Fifth Circuit that says there is no First Amendment issue here. In a case that adopts a particularly narrow view of the First Amendment, I would say, at least in terms of how regards of Critiquing Certainly, it does not view this law as a clear facial First Amendment violation the same way the district court did. And because of that, that means this law very well might move into operation in the near future, putting a real question to social media platforms how exactly they're going to do this um, while they wait on appeal and see what further options. Although I don't think necessarily, they couldn't seek some other sort of injunction uh, moving forward or stay. We don't know if they've done that yet, but I suspect they will um, at least try and get one down the road. But in the meantime, Alan, tell us a little bit more, dig into us a little more deeply on your critiques of this opinion, why it's significant what i got wrong if i got anything wrong i don't think i did i think i nailed it uh and (laughs) where we can go from there (laughs) tens tens across the
1: board yeah so i I mean there's so much to talk about and Quinta has just as much to say as i do so uh, i i'm going to try to sort of cut to what i think is for me the problem with this opinion and this is very much my view i should say i am someone who is in principle actually quite sympathetic at least to the idea of some government regulation over content moderation policies. Mostly, I'm just very unsympathetic to extravagant claims of 1st Amendment protections by technology companies. I just think that's a very blunt instrument that gives these multi, you know, I think in Apple's case, multi like trillion dollar, I mean, just enormous, enormous, enormous companies, really extreme constitutional protections. So I I was kind of excited to read the opinion because I thought, you know, maybe it's thoughtful, maybe it's interesting. And I mean, even I just, I, 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 this piece that I wrote for Lawfare is I think maybe the spiciest I've ever gotten about a judicial opinion um, because it's really very bad. And the fundamental way that I think it's bad is, is as follows. There's a tendency, what I've been calling First Amendment absolutism, for both sides in this debate to view the answer as super obvious. Either the First Amendment applies to platform content moderation decisions, and because it applies, it's almost impossible for any government regulation to pass constitutional scrutiny. Uh, because the First Amendment is a particularly powerful amendment, right? It's a particularly powerful right in American constitutional law. And I think you've seen that. That's sort of been the position of the platforms. It's been the position of, I think, a lot of scholars, a lot of digital civil society types. I think that's changed over the last couple of years, but that's really been the dominant position. And I saw the last couple of years in various contexts arguing against that. But then there's the reverse part of this, which is its own kind of absolutism, which is that there's no First Amendment. Protection at all here because this isn't speech; this is censorship. A line that, in some permutation, the court uses like two dozen times. It just seems to think that repeating something over and over again is equivalent to legal analysis, um, which I found one of the many annoying pieces of this of this opinion. And I think the answer is pretty obviously that it's somewhere in the middle. That when these companies moderate, uh, which they do with a combination of automated and individualized means, they are certainly expressing something. And more important than even that, they are shaping the communicative environment in which all these users operate. So what that means is that I do think the First Amendment has a role in particular to make sure that government regulation isn't overbroad, doesn't you know, single out certain points of view or doesn't ruin the communicative space for everyone. Um, but it shouldn't be absolute because these are our digital commons and it's just a mistake to leave that to the market. Now, how you translate into the doctrine is a little complicated because the Supreme Court opinions on this are a little bit all over the place, and they are fundamentally mostly about 20th century technology, and they just haven't been updated for the 21st century. They ultimately come down to this question of, as a doctrinal matter, are platforms more like newspapers, in which case they have very, very strong protections for their editorial decisions, or are they more like, let's say, a shopping mall? that can be allowed, that can be forced to allow anyone to to you know distribute political literature or a, a college campus uh, that can be uh, forced to allow military recruiters to come on campus right these are two supreme court cases that that uh, allowed this sort of government control over what we might think of as a kind of content moderation and so a lot of these fights whether it's the 5th circuit decision stri- uh, upholding the texas case Or uh, this summer's 11th Circuit decision that struck down a related Florida content moderation bill are having this fight over, well, are platforms like newspapers or are they like shopping malls? And the answer is, well, like they're neither. (laughs) They're their own thing. They're a revolutionary technology, not quite on par with the printing press, but I don't know, within the same order of magnitude as important. And so, you know, to me, the project, and no one has done this well, frankly, the Fifth Circuit, God, least of all, is to rebuild... First Amendment doctrine for this new category of entities, uh, and instead of relying on these outmoded cases to ask ourselves, what is it that we are trying to accomplish, and what sort of government regulations are good at that? The Fifth Circuit does not do that. And the Texas law is also just absurd. It is super vague. It is super broad. It prohibits content moderation on the basis of political viewpoint, which I mean, no one knows what it is, but it seems to pretty obviously lead to policy absurdities like platforms not being permitted to remove terrorist or Nazi content. And although the Fifth Circuit says these are all just hypotheticals, they're not hypotheticals. Like most of social media is Nazi and terrorist content if you don't have pretty strong content moderation. I mean, that and you know, pornography and and uh, advertisements for getting more um, car warranties. And so it, it's just a really unfortunate example of of how you can get kind of a little high in your supply and just not address an issue that is super important with anything like the nuance that it should. To be clear, thats I don't mean that the opposite of the Fifth Circuit decision would be, would be a beneficial one. There are plenty of people critiquing the Fifth Circuit saying, oh, the First Amendment applies, this is a simple case. Any regulation is essentially unconstitutional. I disagree with those people 100% as well. It's just that The Fifth Circuit is, you know, one example of a particularly bad kind of intellectual pathology. And if you want to read 4,500 words about that, there's a lawfare post about it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a
4: chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times underwritten by golden rule insurance company
1: they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com
4: as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either
0: for Lawfare listeners today get 20% off your delete me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout the only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout that's joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can Create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible you can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare
2: yeah, I think I agree mostly with what Alan said. I would be harsher in some respects. I mean, I think that the the really important thing to underline here is that um Scott, I will ding you on one part of your presentation, which is that the Texas law has two you can split it into two components. There's the content moderation portion and there's a transparency reporting provision. And I do think it's important to distinguish between those because they do raise different First Amendment questions. And I think that the even if you take the view that the First Amendment prohibits anything like the content moderation portions, I think that there's a much stronger case for the transparency provisions. The tech companies have been arguing against both of those, but I don't think, as Alan says, this doesn't have to be you know, a yes or a no answer. There can be many shades of gray and we should be looking to, you know, find those and identify them and think seriously about where in that spectrum, you know, good tech policy lies. That said... This is not a good faith example of a court trying to grapple with these problems. I think that the 11th Circuit decision on a sort of similar, though not identical, Florida law was. um, I know Alan disagreed with the 11th Circuit's ruling. It took a, a, I don't know what we wanted, stricter, looser (laughs) view that the First Amendment prohibited some regulation that Alan personally would like.
1: But I was much nicer about it.
2: Yes. Right. Because which is, I think, and rightly so, because it was an example of, you know, an appeals court trying to genuinely grapple with an unsettled area of law and policy in a rapidly changing world and doing so in a way that you or I may not 100 percent agree with. But I think it was done in good faith and it was a it was a serious attempt to address these problems. The Fifth Circuit decision is not only wrong. But it is not a serious attempt to understand any of this. Like, it's wrong. It's wrong factually. It's wrong on the law in any number of ways. And wrong not in the sense that it, like, disagrees with existing doctrine and wants it to change. It just straight up misstates things multiple times. It's, I mean... I think Daphne Keller, who has been, uh, for her sins, really, really closely following this litigation, tweeted a really good, a number of good Twitter threads about it. But one of the things that she said was that it reminded her of, you know, the way that a bully talks. Like, it's, it's just... Smarmy, it doesn't try to make legal arguments because it doesn't have to, because they, it can just do whatever, they, whatever it wants. And I think that you see that in the way that it addresses this question of precedent, where there is this just truly bananas line where the court says, as we always do, and now I'll start paraphrasing essentially, we're going to look at the original meaning of the First Amendment. And weirdly, The tech companies, they didn't do that. They looked at Supreme Court precedents, but we're going to start with originalism. Now, okay, so if you are Clarence Thomas, yes, you can do that because you're on the Supreme Court. This is the Fifth Circuit. That's not what you do in the Fifth. Like, what is even happening here? And that, I think, is really a clue that the train has just completely left the station. So I think that I worry, honestly, that even breaking down the different legal components of this ruling and the different questions of doctrine and law and policy that it raises is, in a weird way, giving it too much credit because it's just like a giant middle finger at everybody. And that is the level of analysis it deserves.
3: So let us I want to set aside the tone issues, right? I think that's a problem with this opinion. It's not unique for being... This judge is not unique for being a dick. Judges are dicks sometimes. (laughs) And it's like just a reality, unfortunately. Listener, that that
2: almost made me choke on my coffee
3: but it's it's flat out true unfortunately scott scott you 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 are right,
1: but there is a just a just a to foot stomp, as they say what when said there's a difference between the tone which I agree is is obnoxious, but whatever and the 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 statement that, um, uh, and here, here I, I will, I will just, just read the, uh, I will just read the sentence because it, it really is completely nuts. Rather than mount any challenge under the original public meaning of the First Amendment, the platforms instead focus their attention on Supreme Court doctrine.
3: That's an insane, that's an insane
1: statement. That's not an issue of tone. That's an issue of a kind of aggressive judicial lawlessness that, Views its role, not as trying to faithfully apply precedent, but as trying to, I mean, I don't even I don't even know tr- trying to predict where a new conservative majority is going to go and get there before they do. And it's that that's a legal problem. That, that's not a tone problem.
2: And I also think that uh, Scott, I know you actually wanted to ask a question, but before you do that,
3: not not even the first sentence over. <laughs> you can it. you can
2: even critique that on originalist grounds, right? So, like Evan Evan Bernick, who's a law professor who's uh, I think would identify himself as an originalist, but has thought very deeply about originalism, was treating like, "This is not like I don't know what this is, but it's not necessarily you know originalism does not mean that you have to take this crazy stance."
3: Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely right, because originalism rarely leads to just one firm conclusion, which is part of like the issue with starting with originalism, right? But setting this aside, right, the, the problem you have with revolutionary judges, or, you know, kind of consciously disruptive judges is that they are subject to appeal, right? So this is now going to go before the Fifth Circuit en banc, potentially, then potentially the Supreme Court, and there's already a split with the Eleventh Circuit. So unless they en banc, you know, aligns itself with the 11th circuit to some degree more the incentive for the Supreme court to take it up is, is pretty significant question i have is is you know setting aside this this judge's failures to wrestle with us and the panel's failures to wrestle with it although the dynamics about amending a judge's opinion are always very interesting and very idiosyncratic so really it's the author who deserves the brunt of it particularly when it comes to tone and framing uh in my view the question i have is you know how do you square the circle, particularly Alan, who who wants to see his middle road opinion, right? Because it's very easy to say, look, I think there's a little bit of both sides in this. Like I like to see a little column a, a, little column B, and the answer somewhere in the middle. But it's actually very challenging at times, particularly in a place like First Amendment doctrine, where you are specifically talking about the government's regulation of something. To say, where do we draw that line and how do we draw that line? Right now, I think that, frankly, has been a contributing factor to the fact that we've seen a right and left consensus around very bold, broad First Amendment doctrine really for the last 20 or 30 years, Um, right? And to the extent that I think is actually not entirely warranted and problematic at some of its extremes, although for most of it, I buy, you know, 90, 80 percent of it. Where do you draw that line? Cuz strikes is kind of a hard case here. Like I don't agree with this outcome of this opinion. I sympathize with you though that like there probably is a reasonable space where you could have some regulation here before you really get at real concrete first amendment rights. But you know, how do you draw the line in a way that's going to be enforceable in a way that's comfortable for the government to apply, for the courts to apply, for the federal or state governments to apply? Like where would you draw that line? yeah no so uh, look this is a this is a very fair question and
1: you know, this is <laughs> this is the classic in, in some sense all all legal questions come down to the debate between rules versus standards right uh, you have rules that are clear they're easy to apply but they're just inaccurate because life is complicated and then you have standards or you know briarisms however you want to call them right which all involve twenty seven factor tests which are impossible to apply and we all make fun of them but actually If you do it well, track reality better, because again, reality is complicated. I would say a couple of things. I do think there's a path forward here. It's called intermediate scrutiny. It is a existing and well-established tier of scrutiny, as they say in constitutional adjudication. I'm going to get the verbiage a little wrong, but it basically asks, look, is the government interest important, right? Does the government law further that interest? And is it overly burdensome, right? So it's intermediate because it's intermediate between strict scrutiny which basically, you know, almost never allows government action to go through because it has really, really high standards and rational basis scrutiny, which basically always allows government action to go through. Again, I'm hugely oversimplifying. In the rest of the world, intermediate scrutiny is basically called proportionality analysis. And it's how most advanced constitutional democracies deal with difficult rights-based questions when the answer is not obvious and every side has a fair point. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, The key to intermediate scrutiny and proportionality analysis is that you have to focus a lot on the specific issue in front of you, right? And so you have to start through a common law process of looking at facts, looking at laws that come before you, start making judgments about specific issues rather than making really bold claims like speech isn't censorship or content moderation is as First Amendment protected as, you know what what I say to my friends on this podcast. You now People are going to draw these lines in different places, 100%. Now, one of the reasons we have a Supreme Court is because we need or we've decided in our infinite wisdom to have a super legislature that decides these questions for us. I'm not thrilled with the composition of the Supreme Court, but... You know, you have to decide these questions somehow. And a court that is relatively humble, I'm not saying this court is, but a court that is relatively humble and answers these questions in limited ways, you know, can over time develop a body of law that makes some amount of sense, which is frankly what they've done in 50 years of the First Amendment as applied to commercial uh, entities, right? The the so-called commercial speech doctrine, uh, which makes all these fine distinctions. So how would you do that in this case? I don't know, uh, to be honest. You know, I will say, I, 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 you know, maybe this is the next Law Review article I write where I actually try to figure out how to do this. Um, now that I keep whining about it so much, personally, I think the Florida law is. I think the combination of the Florida law's tighter scoping, the Florida law doesn't apply to content moderation generally. It applies specifically to politicians and media outlets, right? And I think there's a lot to be said for having a narrower focus on those two entities. Combining that narrower scope with the remedial provisions of the Texas law, which are basically limited to injunctive relief uh, rather than the very extreme monetary penalties that the Florida law does. I think something like that, I could imagine if you massaged it carefully enough, could be the sort of thing we could try out for a while and see if it worked, right? I would be comfortable-ish on that, right? Now, look, I also have my own priors, right? You know, I have my own views on whether Donald Trump should have been kicked off Twitter, I think at the end of the day, he probably shouldn't have been. A lot of people disagree with that. And so under the Florida law, probably really hard to kick him off. You
2: should have saved that for, your, for our hot that, take. That,
1: that should have been my, my super hot take. So I, I get that we, we disagree. But that's what we do in a society where you have difficult constitutional issues. My point is there needs to be a process by which we can think through these difficult problems. Because right now, you just have two sides screaming at each other at the top of their lungs, making no progress. And I think anyone who thinks that this is an, as a policy matter. An easy question is just kidding themselves, and it's just unserious.
2: I don't know, folks. I've been trying to improve my transitions, but this time I don't really know. No excuses. I don't know, man. I I got – well.
3: From one crazy thing involving the state of Texas and the state (laughs) of Florida to another crazy thing involving the states of Texas and Florida.
2: That's so weak. Uh, (laughs) That would
3: be good, I thought. (laughs)
2: OK, <laughs> let's, let's just you know what? Let's go with that. Texas. So in the news recently, you might have seen has been a truly weird story about uh, migrants being shipped by the states of Texas and Florida to uh, Martha's Vineyard. And also the U.S. Naval Observatory, a.k.a. the vice president's residence, which is uh, just a few miles from from me in scenic Washington, D.C., so the idea of moving migrants who come across the southern border by bus is not new. Uh Texas in particular has been been doing it for a while. I know the the details are are complicated and it can be done in cruel and frustrating ways. Sometimes, you know, people really would like a lift to New York, for example, if they have family there, it might be easier to get a job, easier to travel around. But in in the case that has been taking up a lot of attention recently, the state of Florida paid for a group of migrants to be flown from a county in Texas to Florida, and then from Florida to, of all places, Martha's Vineyard, where, weirdly, someone seems to have tipped off Fox News, but not, say, the government of Massachusetts, that these people would be arriving. So... Martha's Vineyard, not actually a particularly big town, especially in the off-season. There are some, you know, very uh, heartwarming photos of people coming together to provide clothes and shelter and and so on, and I believe um, those migrants who wanted to have now been helped to travel to a military base that's on the Massachusetts mainland, um, which is important because if you've crossed the border uh, without authorization, you actually need to be able to check in regularly at a courthouse, um, lest you put yourself at risk for deportation. And Martha's Vineyard, I'm guessing there are actually not a lot of courthouses. So being on the Massachusetts mainland, say, with easy easy to travel to Boston is uh, a useful thing. So... Anyway, (laughs) this is becoming, I think, a a relatively fast-moving scandal, not only because it's not clear whether or not it was legal to do this in the first place. These people did not know that they were going to Martha's Vineyard. They didn't know that nobody knew that they were coming. It's not clear whether or not DeSantis properly used the money in question, the money from the the Florida government to send these people there. And it's also obviously just unbelievably cruel to use people as pawns in this way and kind of say, ha ha, you said that you liked, you know, people who come to the U.S. without documentation. Here are some of them, which is just a whatever your political point, it's an appalling way to treat people. So I don't know. I mean, my sense is that this has the potential to be a really like a potentially a, a genuine scandal less because of the astonishing cruelty and more because of the potential illegality and sort of weird hinky stuff around the margins. Um, Alan, let me throw it over to you. What do you make of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think David French, uh, who's a conservative and, and is on the you know, did the dispatch conservative podcast. I think he said it best, which is I'm against using people as props full stop. And I think it's just, we should just keep repeating that over and over again until that sinks in. It's just an unbelievable cruel thing to do. You know, one thing that's particularly depressing and a reflection of our politics is that the cruelty was the point in a sense. There's there's a question of, you know, trolling the libs and trolling progressive cities and showing how, you know, nimby they can be and you know, showing how hypocritical they can be about migrants. And we should talk about that. Right. Um, but ultimately, the other reason DeSantis did this was to show that he is a strong, you know, strong leader that's willing to protect the border at all costs. And, and, and that I think the cruelty was honestly part of it. And, and you know, cue the discussion about the organization of, of Florida, which maybe we'll have time to, to get into. You know, the legal questions are interesting. You know, I, I just don't know. right? Um, it, I think it depends a lot on the facts. Exactly what did they know? Exactly what were they told? You know, at least on the criminal front, whether this is also a violation of, of Florida statutes, interesting question. And I, I agree that it could be a real problem for DeSantis, not just kind of immediate in the sense of legal liability, but also because I think it punctures a little bit the idea that DeSantis is a competent Trump. Maybe he's just Trump. <laughs> <laughs> just less charismatic, but equally incompetent. Um, that That's that's a quite interesting possibility. You know, At the same time, I do think it's important to recognize that this incident, which again, I mean, everything about this sucks and DeSantis is the worst. There's no question about that. This incident is one incident in a much broader question about how to deal with migrants at the border and specifically how to deal with border towns in the South uh, whose you know social services are just as if not more stressed than that of not Martha's figured but you know New York City or Chicago or you know towns that have declared themselves to be sanctuary cities and so forth and so forth right like there's plenty of hypocrisy to go around and i think it's it's unfortunate you know the, the right has totally lost the thread of this conversation but i think the left has a little bit too Quinta is smirking at as she sees that I, I'm i going into my usual both sides
2: Yeah, I'm just impressed that you you managed to take a story about essentially kidnapping morally, if not legally, people sending them to a small island off the coast of Massachusetts <laughs> without their permission. And still, we're both sides I, of it. Yeah.
1: I'm, very, I'm very talented like that, right? I mean, I, I think I think that um, there's a larger conversation about what we owe to border towns and the fact that border towns complain about you know whose border towns, the demographics of which are often quite similar to the migrants that they are, they are dealing with. That when they complain about the overload, that's not just racism, right? Which is what I think many um, unreflective progressives who don't deal with these issues will often say. So th- th- I'm just saying there's a, there's a bigger story here, and for completeness' of the sake, we maybe not the three of us, but we should talk about it.
3: Well, I I don't disagree with that. Take, but i actually not sure that it actually captures the actual dynamics of this particular controversy, at least as it's breaking out so far, right? Like, we've seen both Governor Abbott in Texas, who's been doing a similar thing about busing people to Chicago, New York, and D.C. I think Chicago hasn't happened yet, but it's happening this week, is actually coming to increase skepticism from both the right and the left. Like, the left, that this is just an inhumane thing to do. And you actually have critics on the right saying... This is a huge public service you're providing, facilitating illegal migration. You have people crossing the border precisely because they want to get to locations north and places where they have strong social services, and you are providing them a speedway for doing that. In that sense, like I, I actually think your point about this, Alan, about maybe this is just a sign that this wasn't that bright a thing to do in the first place, like kind of might capture it, right? And it's interesting because it was very, particularly in the DeSantis case, like really premeditated. Um, this was something they got a. million for in the state budget. This costs about a million dollars. So in theory, they can do this 11 more times roughly, right? And they were warned by members of the Republican Party in the Florida state legislature, hey, let's have a carve out for this to make sure that none of this money is used for, for example, people fleeing communist governments or dictatorial governments. Because in Florida, there's a very big Cuban population that's very sensitive about that sort of thing. And so it's really unique, particularly to see... A Florida politician really take the sort of stands or roll the sort of dice, or at least fail to do this due diligence after having been warned in advance. Part of it might just be a degree of incompetence. Part of it also, I suspect, might be um, the fact that DeSantis is actually probably looking to a national stage and not a state stage at this point, um, and sees the trade-offs of being able to say something to a national audience might outweigh the domestic or statewide cost for him um, in Florida, which... It seems like there are going to be some. I mean, the reaction of Florida Republicans has not been one of vocal overwhelming support for DeSantis' action in this regard, which I think is is itself really interesting and also hints at some of the challenges, frankly, that this kind of next generation post-Trump GOP leadership might have in capturing the bottle of Trumpism um, because Trumpism is to some degree, is such a freewheeling figure when it comes from Donald Trump, not true. And you're an established politician who needs to maintain constituencies that have local interests that don't always align with the national, you know, far right zeitgeist. Uh, so it it's it really raises, I think, a lot of interesting questions And so watch where this goes. I still only suspect we're not going to see many more of these, because frankly, I think you've already seen a criminal investigation launched in Texas. I think you're going to see a federal criminal investigation. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I kind of doubt it leads to charges. But you actually look at the justice manual, which the Department of Justice says about kidnapping statutes and relevant statutes, which I think could apply here, Um, although I don't know if it's a strong case. I kind of doubt it is. But they say, actually, if there's even signs of a possible case of kidnapping, we investigate it as a matter of policy. They have a very aggressive lean forward investigatory posture about those sorts of things. And this seems like it would tip into that to some, some substantial regard, particularly, frankly, in, with a Justice Department that admittedly is run by people who probably are far less sympathetic to this um, than maybe a, a Trump Justice Department might have been, right? And when you start having FBI agents or state investigators call airline companies and bus companies and say, or well, you know, you were engaged in a criminal conspiracy, potentially tell us about what you know and do lengthy interviews with them. They're going to get scared away from doing it. And I think it's going to be harder. So it's, I, I think it's much more interesting, probably as just a, Sense of uh, a wind vein about telling us which way is this blowing and how easy is it for these sorts of figures to try and do these very trumpy things while they're still holding gubernatorial office, right? Like most politicians come from a political background; they don't aren't like Donald Trump where they just come out of the media atmosphere, uh, and and it's a lot more challenging to to tack that path correctly than I think a lot of people appreciate.
1: I, I look forward to when the the fifth and eleventh circuits discover a uh, executive privilege for busing companies. Communications with uh, with governors. It's the First Amendment, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> of course, censorship, censorship, and censorship. Censorship, uh, <clears throat> big, big bus censorship. Um, so I, I know we're running long time, but I, I do want to ask Quinto sort of one one question because I did tease the the Orban thing, which I know is a hobby horse for for both of us. I am curious, what do you make about just the politics of this in the context, because it's this rat sack, right? Not on the old podcast, in the context of you know democracy stuff, with with regard to DeSantis. It, it, my instinct, I, I, I asked this because my instinct, I think, initially was this can't be good for DeSantis because it just it gives him it maybe the most national indication yet, or or it, it it is the most nationally cementing action of his meanness, just cruelty. And you know, Generally, Americans like nice people, but of course, they elected Donald Trump in 2016. So, what the hell do I know? You know what is your sense about whether this improves DeSantis's obvious, I think, beyond a reasonable doubt, ambitions to be president in 2024 or 2028, or if or if it hurts him because this just this was just mean, man, too mean.
2: So, I don't think that meanness hurts him because we've seen that his really astonishing cruelty toward. Gay and trans people um, and children in Florida seems to have paid really enormous political dividends. Maybe it's a matter of being mean to the wrong people. There's an incredible quote. I cannot for the life of me remember the context, but there's a a woman who had voted for Trump and, and felt like she was not getting what she needed from him because her community had sort of been left without defense after some kind of disaster and told the New York Times that she was disappointed with Trump because, and I quote, he's not hurting the right people. So that's sort of Trumpism in a nutshell. And I wonder whether part of his problem here is that he hurt the wrong people, right? He hurt, among others, a lot of Venezuelan immigrants who are uh, sort of similarly situated to the Cuban immigrant community in Florida insofar as they're literally fleeing communism, no matter what your opinion is of the Maduro government. And that 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 makes it much harder for DeSantis to kind of position this as something that needed to be done because these are the people, you know, he's positioning himself as, you know, he's fighting communism, he's fighting for free speech, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot more difficult to make that argument if you're sending Venezuelans to Martha's Vineyard without their permission. I also think that... My sense of DeSantis and I think I said this on the Hot Take show has always been that he he there's a calculating edge to him that Trump just doesn't have and that can play to his advantage because it means that he's a little more canny. I think it can also play to his disadvantage because he he loses some of that kind of authenticity and spontaneity that I think is a lot of what draws people to Trump. And I actually think that the the way that this was so clearly premeditated and premeditated in like the weirdest possible way like you take people from Texas and you touch down in Florida and then it just it's just strange. And I do wonder whether the sort of choreographed element of it really undercuts a lot of the power that he was trying to to draw on.
1: Do we know, by the way, why he touched why they touched down in Florida first?
2: So I, be- I believe that they touched down in Florida. Um, I, I think this is from a Miami Herald reporting. My impression is that. The money that was used to pay for this is from a national pot of COVID funds that was given to states. (laughs)
1: Of course it was.
2: Certain, certain states. (laughs) From the interest on those funds. Right. Yes. Thank you. Um, Including Texas and Florida then passed laws saying that they could use that money for other purposes, including uh, immigration policy, and that the Florida statute specifies that the immigrants in question who the funds are being used to address in some way have to be in Florida. So I think it's it's trying to kind of get through that legal loophole.
3: Very strange. Does not seem like the most thought out scheme. Strange and sad. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over until you hear from us again next week. Alan, what do you have for this week's object lesson?
1: My object lesson is basic in the most delicious way possible. It is Trader Joe's ice cream, specifically the salted maple ice cream, which is their special annual seasonal flavor. My God, is it good. Uh, My wife and I are eating it like one tiny teaspoon at a time, and uh, it's wonderful. It's so, so, so tasty. Highly recommended.
3: Very seasonally appropriate. I like that. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I have uh, another judicial opinion out of the great state of Texas. This is an opinion from a federal judge ruling in a Second Amendment case finding that under Bruin, uh, the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to purchase a semi-automatic firearm even after indictment by a grand jury. What I want to talk about is not that uh, what I think is objectively absurd finding, but Um, A particular reference that the judge made in writing this opinion, the judge writes, this court faces a predicament similar to Plato's allegory of the cave, and then goes on (laughs) to describe the known knowns of the case, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. So I personally, having, yes, for my sins, read Plato's Republic, did not recall this. uh, And the reason friends, is that that is not a line from Plato about known knowns and unknown unknowns. That is Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, And lest you think that maybe this judge was just like making like a weird joke or something, uh, he says it again. Later in the opinion, he refers to, quote, Plato's unknown unknowns. So frankly, I don't know what happened here. Maybe it is a weird joke. Maybe the judge is genuinely confusing Plato and Donald Rumsfeld. I don't know if anyone... In the course of human history, has made that mistake before, but there's a first time for everything. So, thank you, Texas judge, for this strange little moment of zen.
1: This is actually Quinta's known unknown about whether the judge knows that
3: Donald Rumsfeld and Plato are not the
1: same. Are people. different
2: people?
3: <laughs> is Quinta's, what is casting the shadow? I think we, I think we can figure this out, guys. I think, I think we can tie this all back. <laughs> Rummy, Rummy went to Princeton. He read classics. He, I'm sure he dug into the Republic at some point. That's where this is all coming from. Just blame that first semester uh, reading assignment. Anyway, for my object lesson this week, uh, I am reporting back on my pepper adventures. As, as listeners may recall, earlier in the spring, actually, I noted that I planted several anonymous pepper plants, several of which remain anonymous, because I can't figure out what some of these peppers are. But one of them, it turns out, is a Tabasco pepper plant, which I did not realize was actually a type of pepper tiny little red peppers, evidently popular throughout parts of the Southeast. Um, uh, and I have no idea what to do with these peppers. And I, I harvested a ton of them. Um, and people sent me lots of wonderful hot sauce recommendations, which I greatly appreciate, but none of them really involved a type of pepper that seemed like these Tabasco peppers. And so I started Googling and I found something called Peppa sauce. P-E-P-P-A is usually the way it's translated, which evidently is a very popular Uh, according to various places on the internet, hot sauce in parts of the American Southeast and South, primarily consisting of vinegar and peppers, shoved into a bottle, and they just pour vinegar on top. Uh, And I ended up doing this, and I have to say, it's phenomenal. Uh, And I highly recommend people trying it. And so this is my first reported back hot sauce experiment success uh, with this pepper sauce, where I essentially just jammed a bunch of these peppers, some garlic, some black peppercorns, poured some salt and sugar and hot vinegar over them and let them sit for a couple weeks and for a couple week week or two like nothing really happened but now a few weeks in I gotta say it's gotten pretty good throw a little olive oil in there just like mix it up a little bit so I recommend this I'll throw the recipe online I recommend it to folks if you've got a bunch of little tiny peppers you don't know what to do with I bet you could do it with like bird's eyes and make it really spicy my one beef with it is not spicy enough Um, I think if you really like adjusted certain types of peppers you could really amp it up a couple notches Um, so I'm curious if people have any thoughts or experience. In that regard, they're willing to share. But for those who shared hot sauce recipes, recipes with me, keep stay tuned. I am harvesting them by the bushel load at this point, and hopefully i have time to try a few more in the coming weeks. Um, so I will report back as I get through those different recipes. Until then, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links in past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast. And be sure to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kira Shillin of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week.